who owned that store, spraying him in the eyes with bear spray, and then holding him over the counter while they proceeded to spank him. And I said, sometimes you can go into a situation with a plan that makes sense to you, and in the end, find yourself getting spanked. Or as Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So your prayers and your, your patience are very appreciated. Let me ask you this. How many guys are proud owners of bifocal lenses? Okay. You'll be ahead of the game this morning. Uh, leaders in the church pastors, covenant group leaders, people who care for and disciple other believers, they, they have to develop the practice of approaching the Bible and sermons with two sets of lenses. You view them with an eye to how God's addressing your own soul, but you also bring the perspective of how those you care for need what you're receiving. Well, the message this morning is going to place all of you in that position. If you're not a teenager or a parent of teens, you might be wondering why you're here today. You know, should you just go home early, get a, get a lunch going, uh, get a head start on the Saints game? So why are you here? If, if youth ministry is not on your radar screen, why, why should you be listening this morning? Well, well, two reasons. First, I won't be drawing any principles from our passage in Philippians that won't apply to all believers. When we look at Paul's statements about himself in this text, we're learning about what it means to be a Christian. So I hope that all of us will listen with an ear for our own souls, that we'll make use of that first lens. But second, there is nothing that we are called to do as a church, no ministry that we're called to do that's disconnected from you. Sometimes the way that we talk about the church can reveal our functional theology of the church. We'll We'll say things like, oh, the church will pay for that. The church will take care of that. That's the church's responsibility. But who's the church if not the people who make up the body of Christ? The church is not just some facility with paid staff members who run programs. No, you are the church. And anything we do as a church, it happens because of you, your prayers, your serving, your giving of your time and your finances. So if you call this local church home, then you have a ministry interest in what we discussed this morning. You've been given a second lens to look through. So with that in mind, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 in our Bibles. And we're going to read together verse 7 through 11. Paul writes in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, before we approach God's word, let's seek God's help. Father, we ask that you would awaken us to the beauty and the wonder of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this morning, we would sound a little bit more like the Apostle Paul sounds here. We would be enthralled with our Savior. God, help us as we talk about this ministry, bring clarity and direction to us as a church as we await your leading. 
we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, since almost everyone in here is either a teenager or used to be one, some of us less recently than others, we, we all know that the teen years represent some unique challenges. It's when you're a teenager that you really begin to discover who you are, and along the ways, there, there, there are various voices telling you who you should be. There are friendship issues Relationships with parents change and they can become strained. There's a level of awkwardness with physical development and a concern for appearance. There are pressures from school, from peers, from adults, from the media. And for students who are in the church, there's a coming to grips with the faith that you've been taught as you begin to increasingly meet the challenges of the world. And today there's this additional problem of postmodern squishiness in which having a firm opinion about anything, especially truth and moral values, is the ultimate sin. So how do you reach teens in today's world? Well, it'll mean stepping into their world, for sure, understanding what they're facing. But when you've entered their world, you better have brought something with you from the outside. What is that? Well, I hope that our our passage in Philippians will supply that for us. Paul opens this letter in chapter 1, verse 1, addressing the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So he's speaking both to church leaders and to the congregation here. We're all represented. And he begins chapter 3 by warning them of the deception of false teachers. He says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's referring to those who insist upon circumcision as a basis for acceptance before God. And his primary indictment of, of this group is that they pervert the grace of God. They mingle in their own obedience and they obscure the glory of the gospel of Christ. And so he says in verse 3, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's a fundamental dichotomy here. There are two options. Either you put your confidence in the flesh, placing your hope and finding your joy in your achievements, your status, your works, or you glory in Christ Jesus alone. And Paul, in this chapter, describes the transformation he experienced from putting his confidence in the flesh to boasting only in Christ. In verse 4 through 6, he lists all the achievements of his former life. And then in verse 7 through 11, he explains why he tossed them all in the can so that he could have Jesus alone. And what I see in this text are four values that would represent the burden that I have for the teens in this church to experience. And they would be that I want teens to abandon any identity in status or achievement outside of knowing Christ. And I get that from verse 8. I want teens to abandon any false assurance in cultural Christianity or church upbringing and boast only in the righteousness of Christ from verse 9. I want teens to abandon any ambition to live a discomfort-free or suffering-absent life and embrace radical sacrifice for Christ from verse 10. And I want teens to abandon the cultural fog that this brief time on earth is everything and live for eternity with Christ, from verse 11. These would represent my prayers, my prayer requests for our teens, and and they would inform my approach and the, the approach that we would take as a church in seeking to care for them. And we'll, we'll take these in turn. So first, I want teens to abandon any identity in status or achievement outside of knowing Christ. 
I came across some fun statistics about the reign of social media among young people today. 40% of teens would rather do any of the following than give up their social networking profiles. They'd rather wait in line at the DMV or clean the shower drains at the local gym. That's disgusting. Run a marathon, get a root canal, read War and Peace, give up an hour of sleep each night for a year, or my personal favorite, sit in traffic for four hours while listening to polka music. Now, why is this? What's so attractive about social media? Well, one possible answer is that all of us, especially teenagers, desire to be meaningfully connected to others. But is that really what social networking provides? Authentic connection? Or is it a, a comfortable environment that offers a, a platform for promoting your own achievements under the guise of relationships? You know, the, the structure of Facebook, the way it's laid out is that you invite the world to be your witness as you update them from one status to the next along your personal timeline. A recent article from the Wall Street Journal titled, Are We All Braggarts Now? explores the role of social media in creating a culture of boasting. It, it highlights the disparity that's present between people's public profiles on Facebook and the reality of their normal, boring lives. It says, clearly the internet has given us a global audience for our bombast, and social media sites encourage it. We're all expected to be perfect all the time. The result is more people carefully stage managing their online image. Now, when teenagers are used to being able to stage manage their image in a comfortable environment, they're much less likely to meaningfully engage in a setting that makes them feel vulnerable to analysis. So much for youth ministry. <laughs> Honestly, I think this is a feature of the world that we live in that makes connecting with teenagers very difficult. But obviously, social media is not the cause of the underlying heart problem here. It only serves to, to bring it to the focus. Teens are desperately wanting to be seen as significant. They're terribly afraid that somebody's going to find out who they really are. Normal and unimpressive. But Paul has something to say about status in this text, and it has everything to do with the worth and the value of Jesus Christ, Paul expresses complete freedom from the hamster wheel of pleasing others because he's found one person he cherishes and for whom he lives. In verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because, why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To read Philippians 3 is to be introduced to someone who's utterly fascinated with the person of Jesus Christ. Paul approaches redundancy here with the number of times he mentions Christ. In these few verses, he says in verse 7, For the sake of Christ... Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, in verse 8. For his sake, in order that I might gain Christ, be found in him, verse 9. That I may know him, verse 10, becoming like him. And what Paul's saying in verse 8 is you can collect together everything I've accomplished. Everything that might cause others to applaud me. And you can pile it high. And you place knowing Christ next to it, and you find you have a pile of dung. He uses a term that's almost crude in its connotations. He wants the contrast to be very clear. These things mean nothing to me. 
They're garbage. They become something repulsive in his eyes. Kent Hughes says Paul's former accomplishments had become abhorrent to him. Not because they were bad, for they were not, but because they kept him from Christ. Jesus was of supreme value to Paul. Just knowing him was better than anything else. He wanted to be identified by one thing. He wanted one thing to define him, and it was that he belonged to Christ. He said in verse 12, Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm his. Jesus had claimed him absolutely. He met him on the Damascus road and set his seal upon him. It's not what Paul possessed, but who possessed him that mattered to him. You feel this? Does this resonate in your heart? This is the Jesus that, by the Lord's help, with your prayers, I want to present to the teenagers in our midst. I want them to learn to treasure Christ like this. The the teen years, for many, can represent years of fascination with rubbish. Years of the charm and tyranny of lesser things. Years of ambition and emptiness. Years of fear and hiding. Years of slavery to the opinion and affirmation of others. Years of unsatisfied living. Always trying to acquire that one thing that promises to fulfill. But it doesn't have to be this way. Paul's Jesus is more beautiful and more glorious than the latest fad or celebrity, more wonderful than the most creative Super Bowl ad, more significant than the trending topic on Twitter, more important than pristine grades or a successful high school athletic career. Knowing him is more important than being known. And by the Lord's grace... We have teenagers in this church who see this, who recognize the beauty of the Savior, who put no confidence in the flesh, but glory in Christ Jesus alone, who love the Lord, even when it costs them personally. We have a few, but we want to see this become infectious. Question is, parents, adults, do the teenagers in this church see that you value Christ like this? Do they see that you treasure him above your job, above the stock market, above having a perfect garden, above your health, above even having obedient and respectful kids? They see that in you. Ultimately, we find our all in Christ when we realize that he's all we have. And that's what Paul's getting at in the next verse. Look at verse 9. He says, and be found in him not having. I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This informs my second point. I want teens to abandon any false assurance in cultural Christianity or church upbringing and boast only in the righteousness of Christ. In verse 4 through 6, Paul provides the reasons for his former confidence in the flesh He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he had that very feature that the false teachers were insisting true believers embraced. He was of the chosen people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the only other tribe that stuck with Judah 
when Israel split, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had a cultural and religious pedigree. He was a Pharisee, carefully outlining and following the law of God. And on top of that, he persecuted the church. He, he sought to oppose rival movements that he perceived were set against the Israelite faith. And then he makes this amazing statement in verse 6. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then in verse 7 he says, what I thought was gain. He comes to recognize loss. These things, whatever I thought gain, these are the very things I count as loss. One big loss. Sinclair Ferguson gives this illustration. He says, imagine a man who is writing checks for a month and then at the end of the month he looks at his bank statement and he realized what he, the money he thought he was depositing into the account was actually being withdrawn. Everything he thought was a credit was actually a debit. And that's what Paul says here. The gain I thought I had was one big loss. It was a loss for two reasons. It was a loss because, as he says in verse 9, he actually does not have any righteousness that comes from the law. That's impossible when it comes to meeting God's righteous standards. All of our best efforts, including the Apostle Paul's, is like filthy, polluted garments. Everything positive becomes negative. God does not accept our self-driven, self pleasing, self-sufficient attempts to pay him off with our works. He doesn't accept it. But it was a loss mainly because with all his effort, he didn't have Christ. In her fascinating novel, Wise Blood, uh, author Flannery O'Connor says about her main character, Hazel Motes, that within him there was this deep, black, wordless conviction that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. You catch that? You, you can run from Jesus by running into sin, or you can run from Jesus by running away from sin if it makes you think you don't need a Savior. doesn't matter if it's Christless, Religion or Christless irreligion, if it's Christless. Paul does not want his own righteousness. He views it as an obstacle to having Christ. He empties his hands and he holds on to his Savior with everything in him. He wants an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of himself, a righteousness accomplished by the obedience of Jesus Christ, credited to him by faith. You want your record or you want Christ's record, but you can't have both. Paul tossed his record on the rubbish heap. What does this have to do with youth ministry? Well, as we present Christianity to teens, we, we want to be careful that they don't come to view it mainly as a manageable list of do's and don'ts, like Paul's list in this chapter, but as the work and presence of a person. This is especially important when the, the teens we seek to care for have, have grown up in the church, they've been around Christianity for as long as they can remember. And we want to be very clear that being a Christian is not fundamentally an issue of performance, but of receiving the perfect performance of another by faith. Paul places working and receiving in total opposition when it comes to justification. He says elsewhere in Romans 4, verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. In other words, you've done your job, you get paid. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith 
is counted as righteousness. That's how God justifies. That's what it means to be a Christian. In his article, Youth Ministry's Tendency Toward Legalism, Cameron Cole writes, based on my experience in youth ministry, if I had to identify the greatest theological problem in the field, it would be the absence of the gospel in teaching on sanctification. Parents rightly want moral children, as do youth pastors. Sometimes families view the church exclusively as a vehicle for moral education rather than spiritually forming them in Christ and put pressure on youth and senior pastors to moralize their children. Now, I don't think that's been the case for us historically. But what I'm saying is we we want to continue to see this as a value that informs the content and the approach and how we seek to care for our students. Verse 4 through 6 of this chapter is Paul saying, you want to play the performance game? I win that game every time, but I've left that game behind. Christ is more precious than performance. I want our youth to find no security in cultural Christianity, but to feel the poverty of their own moral currency and run to the provision of the gospel. Brian Crosby has this interesting observation. He says, Paul, after Paul has revealed that American teenagers' number one fear is being alone, these same polls also reveal that the second greatest fear, which leads to being alone, is rejection. The irony, of course, is that these same teenagers want to be different. Youth want to be known, blemishes, sin, and all, and told, I'm going to love you and accept you anyway. If we would but realize that this is the gospel message. You are more sinful than you would ever imagine. And yet, through faith in Christ, you are more accepted and loved than you could ever dream. Youth ministry is gospel ministry. It is grace ministry. It is the presentation of the message again and again. That although we are incapable of offering God the perfect obedience he requires, he has given us a savior. He has, to use a concept that teens can appreciate, he's taken our failing grades and given them to Christ. And he's handed us his flawless report card. We give teens the good news that Jesus was a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, and so on in their place. He lived these years faithfully for them. Verse 8, Paul says that knowing Jesus is more to be treasured than achievement In verse 9, he says that the righteousness of Jesus is more to be valued than performance. And then in verse 10, he says that being found in Jesus is more to be desired than a comfortable life. Look at what he says in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This gives us our third principle. We want to see teens abandon any ambition to live a discomfort-free or suffering-absent life and embrace radical sacrifice for Christ. Paul's writing this letter from prison, and he's writing to a congregation that we find out from 2 Corinthians 8 is facing poverty and affliction, and he opens this chapter by telling them to rejoice in the Lord. That is, rejoice in the Lord Jesus, not in comfortable circumstances. Find your joy in Christ, not in favorable life settings. For our friends, in Laplace, 
on the North Shore who experienced flooding and Hurricane Isaac, I'm sure this verse has some fresh relevance. In verse 10, Paul expresses his desire to know the power of the resurrection, but recognizing, as he does in 2 Corinthians 12, that this resurrection power is made perfect in weakness. He also says that he wants to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. He's committed to conforming as the language he uses conveys, to the standard of the death of Christ. The same death he describes in chapter 2 as even death on a cross. By the way, when we talk about being cross-centered as a church and as a family of churches, we, we don't just mean that we celebrate the forgiveness brought about by the cross. We, we mean certainly that, but it also means that we welcome the daily cross. It means we have a theology of suffering in our Christian vocabulary. We resist the myth that God's greatest concern for our life is that we would be comfortable and at ease, and instead we embrace the blows of this fallen and broken world with joy, knowing that we're made to be like our Lord. Piper writes, following Jesus means that we share in his suffering. When Jesus calls us to follow him, this is where he puts the emphasis. He knows he is heading to the cross and he demands that we do the same. He designs his entire life and ministry to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Listen to this. If you follow Jesus only because he makes life easy now, it will look to the world as though you really love what they love and Jesus just happens to provide it for you. But if you suffer with Jesus in the pathway of love because he is your supreme treasure, then it will be apparent to the world that your heart is set on a different fortune than theirs. This is why Jesus demands that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Earlier in this book, in chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writes, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, please note, there are two gifts in this verse. There's the gift of faith, it's been granted to us to believe. Hopefully, we've come to see that through the Doctrines of Grace class, that faith is not something we generate on our own, but it's a gracious gift from God. But there's another gift in this verse, the gift of suffering. It's been granted to us that we would suffer. It's been given to us that we would experience hurricanes, that we would receive a cancer diagnosis, that we would find ourselves in unwanted singleness, that our job would be taken from us. Now, this might be one of those gifts like dress socks from your grandmother on Christmas that you don't particularly appreciate. But suffering in and of itself is not specifically the gift here, but the gift of Christ in suffering. Suffering is the package for this gift. It is the wrapping it comes. Paul, twice in this verse, uses the same phrase he uses in chapter 3. He says, for the sake of Christ, for his sake, we suffer because Jesus is precious. We suffer because we prize Jesus more than healthy, manageable lives. We experience a spectrum of trials in this life so that the onlooking world knows, sees that Christ is our supreme treasure. I want this to become a functioning category for our youth. And teens, 
often live to do as much as they can to minimize discomfort and maximize ease in their lives. You know, when you're, you're a teenager, it's like you strategize. How can I make sure I don't have to do anything difficult today? Now, teenagers don't naturally pursue things that will cost them their sleep, cost them security, cost them the approval of others. That's why Alex and Brett Harris wrote their book, Do Hard Things. This is a radically countercultural message for teens. But being a Christian at any age, any age means sharing in Christ's sufferings. For some teens, this might mean fulfilling Paul's statement that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. For other teens, it might just mean doing the hard work of being a Christian, being willing to do the tough work of being a believer. Being a Christian is difficult. It's tough. No less in the teen years, Paul does not have a vision for the Christian life that is easy or work-free. Look at how he describes it in the next paragraph in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Straining, pressing on. This means effort, work. Teens tend to assume that if they're going to experience the work of God in their life that's going to happen unilaterally, like it's just going to happen all on its own, just going to descend upon you like a cloud. You know, in the years I've been involved with youth ministry, I've heard things like, God just really didn't meet me this year at youth camp. You know, I, I attended, but I just didn't have the same experience. Well, what did you do to pursue him? God works through our work. And often this is hard work. My hope is that our teenagers would leave behind the idea that difficulty in any form is to be avoided like lice for Chewbacca. <laughs> you know, I should add here that as the leader... I too must be willing to suffer the loss of all things. I've heard it said that the difference between being a seminary professor and being a pastor, you think about the magicians who you know, stick somebody in the box and shove all the swords in and, and all that. He says, when you're a seminary professor, you get to put students in a box and you get to shove the swords in there and see what happens. But when you're a pastor, you're inside of the box. And Rebecca and I don't yet know what that might involve. But what's clear is that ministry comes at a cost. The, the cost of time, cost of emotional commitment, the cost of scrutiny, criticism, the cost in, in some instances of much investment with little fruit. But Christ is valuable. What makes the cost of suffering worth it for any of us is the promised reward in eternity. And that's where Paul goes next. Verse 11, that by any means possible, what Ever it takes, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so finally, I want teens to abandon the cultural fog that this brief time on earth is everything and live for eternity with Christ. Paul has 
set his aim on this future reality. It's called the resurrection from the dead. By the way, our ultimate hope as Christians is not to live some sort of floaty existence in a cloud in heaven with see-through souls like Casper the friendly ghost, but to be restored one day bodily, glorified in a new heaven and a new earth. There are very physical dimensions about this. This is how Paul describes it in verse 20 of this chapter. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. But the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things are currently in subjection under the feet of Jesus Christ. I told the youth that this means their chemistry teacher is in subjection under the feet of Christ. And they appreciated hearing that. And one day, this Christ will return and he'll make all things new. This eternal perspective informs everything for Paul. This is what defines true reality for him. C.S. Lewis has said that This life is the dream. When we die, we wake up. You ever had one of those dreams you were just convinced was real and took you a few moments after waking up to realize it was was only a dream? One day, billions of people will have that experience. This is the dream world. And in this world, a fog has descended upon it, hiding the light from the outside, claiming that this is all there is. But one day, a bright light will cut through the fog and will shine on the hills of the new Jerusalem. And the same Jesus who met the apostle Paul on the Damascus road with blinding light, the same Jesus for whom Paul has considered Everything else, rubbish, will come again and will claim his own. I want our youth meetings and everything we do as a church to be a light shining in the fog. A reminder of the eternity that is approaching. Inescapable. So easy to forget this. Even as Christians, we begin to treat the things in this life as, as if this is all there is, as if this world's our home. You know, teens are particularly prone to short sightedness here. They, they come to youth meetings and they are wrinkly from swimming in the surrounding present-focused culture all day. Paul Tripp says, eschatology, focus on eternity, is not the strong point of most teenagers' functional theology. They don't tend to live with eternity in view. They don't think in terms of delayed gratification. Teenagers are shockingly present-focused. They live as if the present moment is the only moment of life. They don't think in terms of investment. I want our youth to think in terms of investment. What are you spending toward? Consider not only in light of the next few months or even the next 50 years, What about the next five billion years? Sinclair Ferguson says, what future is there and the object of your devotion is a question which should never be far from our minds. Everything becomes relativized by eternity. And the vast expanse of eternity, the The time that we spend on this old earth is too small to measure. 
I want our teens to feel this. Call of Duty for Xbox 360 is a blip on the radar screen. (laughs) Katy Perry and Adam Levine are soon forgotten. The Facebook status posted yesterday is infinitesimally insignificant. What was said about you last week at school is a whisper taken away by the wind. That person you're desperate to please is made of the same fading dust as you and I. What future is there in the object of your devotion? Is it informed by the scent of hellfire and the striking beauty of heaven? Paul says about those who place their confidence in the flesh in verse 19, that their end is destruction. Their God is the belly and a glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await a Savior. Are you waiting for Him? Are you looking forward to Him? Teens, parents, singles, young marrieds, grandparents, is your face set toward Him? Jesus is more significant than status, more precious than performance, more costly than comfort, more permanent than the present. May we be a church who values him like this. Pastor Keith. Evan, just an outstanding job. You don't have to be a a teen to find lots of realities. You know, here's what... uh, Here's here's what a a youth pastor does. Because all of us just, we were all youth. We were all teens. We grew up and we became adults. And we we took some of the issues that were described for teenagers with us, went into adulthood and began to live there. We used to live over there. We live over here now. And all of our little quirky personality issues just traveled with us into a 20-year version and a 30-year-old and a 40-year-old version. And here we are as adults, right? But what I wanted us to do in this series was to get a little bit of a sense of together, we are, we are building something together. And so it's, it's not enough that, you know, unlike kind of building, building this building physically, there was an architect and there was a lot of meetings and, and most of you were not a part of those. But there was a bunch of meetings spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours went into how big does that need to be? Where does that need to go? What's that supposed to be like? And how, how are we, why are we designing these things this way? And there was a lot of meetings that created this physical space. As a church, we're building something together. Not just a physical building, though. We're, we're building a culture within a culture. Every one of us. As I said a few weeks ago, everything that we're doing is in all hands on deck issue. And so as Evan began the message, you don't have to be a teen, you don't have to be a parent of teens to participate in building a church 
that will affect teenagers. And that's what we're seeking to build here. And that's what, what Evan is seeking to share with us. And let me, let me say this because I think we've always been a church that's maintained a strong value for the role of parents in the lives of young people. And we've, we've never wanted to displace that. We've, we've never been interested in creating an alternative to parents in the lives of teenagers. Uh, that's a unique role assigned by God for each parent who's here with teenagers or one day you're going to have teenagers to be equipped, play that role. But when I, when I look in the Bible, Evan and I were talking about this the other day, I look in the Bible, there are parents playing uniquely a role in the lives of teenagers, but I look in the Bible, there are pastors playing a role uniquely in people's lives. Uh, we're not asking Evan to be a parent to your teens, Neither is God asking you to be your teen's pastor either. And I know that kind of rocks people's boats a little bit, depending on your theology a little. When I read in the Bible, I find God has raised up pastors. He has given children to parents. He has raised up pastors to bring an influence into the setting of the church uniquely. And so... What we anticipate Evan's role of leading to be is, is a bit of a, a pastor, a missionary to teenagers. A man who takes the truths of the word of God and finds out, how do I get this truth into that world? And studies that world and these kids. Like, I mean... Who the heck is Adam Levine? See, I'm realizing I used to be a youth pastor. I would have known what names were relevant to young people. Okay, Katy Perry, I kind of went with you there a little bit. I've heard of her. But Adam Levine, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm out of touch. I'm really out of touch. Uh, I'm a parent. <laughs> but you know what I need? I need as a parent. I need the gift of pastor in my life. I need the gift of pastor in my children's lives. And so all hands on deck means embracing the means that God has given us together. And, and what a unique gifting Evan brings. As I was sitting in the youth meeting the other night and listening to him lead the kids through the prodigal story. And just... That story came to life as he just, he's a man who loves God's word. I mean, you, you don't have to be very long with him, do you, to figure that out. You don't have to hear him speak too much to figure out this, this guy loves what's in this word. And it's affected him. And he wants it to affect others as well. That's so clear in listening the other night as he led the teens through these passages in the Gospels. And looked at this prodigal story. Uh, listen, our, our kids are getting inundated with ideas and stuff that somebody out there thinks is valuable. I'm glad to have a man stand in front of them to say, hey, this is enamoring. He doesn't just bring lessons. He loves this word. And that's clear when he handles it. And you, can, you experienced that this morning. And I love the fact that our young people will get a chance to experience that. Being around somebody who loves what's in this word and is drawn to it and affected by it. And he wants it to affect them as well, and it will. I want to ask you this morning as we pray together. I want to ask you this morning to be committed as a church. We have an assignment of being a culture within a culture. That's what we are. We are a culture within a culture. Uniquely, for our young people, there needs to be a youth culture within a culture. Our youth are going to travel through this stage. It lasts a lot longer than it used to. You used to grow out of this stage faster. Now it lingers into the late 20s, it feels like. But still, at some point, you travel through this. And the church is to have a culture within a culture. Now, let me, let me say this as I call parents in particular to pray about what that means for you and how you're leading your children. 
The, the church is a, is a live animal, right? It's not, a, it's not a principle. It's real people. The church, when the church is being the church, is, is a messy place because it's got real human beings in it. It's got some who are way over here in sanctification and some who are way over here. It's got some when they sin, they sin nice, and it's got some when they sin, they sin really ugly. That's the church. Or, or was I just describing your family? Because that's my family too. Right? I got a variety of people in a variety of places in process with different personalities interacting with God, some of them with rebellious, and Evan did a great job the other night with identifying these two sons in the household, the prodigal story, equally needing to be rescued from themselves, equally. Although one stayed at home, didn't he? What does it mean for us to create a culture together? Well, I can tell you one thing it's going to mean. It's going to mean you're going to be around some sloppy people, some messy people. You're going to be around some messes. Teenagers are messy little creatures for all the reasons that Evan brought out in the beginning. And all of us were that way too. And yet within this space, we want to create a culture that can reach into that culture, effectively reach into that culture. Listen, to create that culture, you're going to have to help your kids create that culture because they don't want to do the hard things. And creating that culture is going to be hard. So they're going to have multiple reasons for avoiding that setting where a culture is being created that challenges who they are. And they're going to need to be helped and led by us as parents in terms of their involvement and participation and doing things that are hard. So what I want to ask us to do as, as a family here together, uh, it's, it's sloppy to be families. Right? There's a variety of sins. Your kids sin in a variety of ways without ever leaving home. And then you put them in the church and they get exposed to that as well. I recognize that. You do too. And God hasn't called you. God didn't call the nation of Israel to avoid themselves. They live with themselves. They live with the ones who really love God, and they live with the ones, remember the Bible says, they are not all Israel who have descended from Israel, but they all live together as Israel. And you had to just learn to deal with the mess. So I want to, I want to, Pray with parents in particular this morning. I want to pray with teenagers this morning. This is an all hands on deck. God's calling you to build something, to build something that's going to matter in eternity, to build a culture here within a culture that can affect young people and where they're headed in their lives. So let me ask, let me ask Evan and Rebecca. Come on up here, Rebecca. <clears throat> they would come forward. Let me ask all the teenagers here. Maybe you're on the verge of being a teenager. If you're like 11, 12, you can, you can stand up as well. And all the parents that are here, you can stand up as well. And... and I mean, just by way of extending this, I mean, I know that I could extend it into everybody here because, as Evan said, there's not a person here who's not participating in creating this culture. A grandparents, ask them to stand up as well so Peter doesn't yell at me in staff meeting on Tuesday. <laughs> You're a grandparent. Tell them, stand up. Good night. All the hearing impaired grandparents, if you would please stand up. <laughs> all the attention deficit grandparents if you would please stand up alright there's a whole bunch of us standing here this morning man what, a, what an army look around what an army to bring influence to an age group that is being torn by the winds of this world 
awash in information and bad ideas and pressures and difficulties of living their life for the glory of God at an age when it's pretty difficult to do that. But this is, this is a means of grace. This room is filled with the means of grace. It's also filled with people who aren't going to do everything right. And I appreciate it, Evan, standing and saying, there's cost involved in ministry. And, and, and these guys are stepping forward, not fully aware, hey, we're, there's going to be cost here. There's going to be some scars and wounds, and we're going to bear some of them. That's okay. That's the reality of being family. Right? You don't, no one raise your hand right now. Okay? No one raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you have been hurt by your family? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> How many of you know God called you to be a part of that family? Are you, you're you're going to get hurt in this family too. Disappointed. Let down. Fallen short. But God has still called you to be a part of the church. God has called pastors to be involved in your life and leadership to be given and received. So in days ahead, let's, let's pray this morning that God would give us grace to build something together for his glory. Father, I thank you. Lord, I, I, I love these four points. Lord, they could have been six or seven points, I'm sure. But I love these four. Lord, I love the thought that these would reverberate in our souls. They would, they would define our character. They would inform our attitudes that we wake in the morning and these four thoughts are accessible to us. They are reinforced. We are reminded of them on a regular basis. Lord, we are standing with others in the body of Christ to help us to put on these four attitudes in our lives. Lord, in, in the midst of the turbulence and the flow and current of this fallen world, that these would be shaping thoughts and ideas in our lives. Oh, Lord, I love that. And Father, we pray this morning for grace for days ahead. Lord, that these truths here in these passages and other truths that you want to have operating in our lives would find a greenhouse in which to grow. Lord, would you raise up here through this church a healthy, vibrant culture for young people to live their lives in a place where, where they can grow to put these things on. They can wrestle with the difficulties of sin, the brokenness of their own humanity. They can, they can not dress themselves up in moralism and avoid the Savior, neither can they run towards the world and avoid the Savior, but they would find themselves in a setting where no matter how moral or immoral they are, they are in touch with the reality. They need the living Christ in their life by the power of the Holy Spirit transforming them. Lord, give us a culture like that. God, give us parents and grandparents. Give us pastors and leaders Give us peers and friends in the body of Christ that build something that ordains, creates, and spurs on the work of your spirit in our young people's lives. So that there might be the planting of truth and the harvesting of truth in the days ahead when they need it the most. God, your church is a, it's a place of instruction and correction. It's a place of growth. It's a place of love and care and mercy. It's a place of mission, Lord. It's that for every one of us. God, we pray for it this morning. To be that for our teenagers. Lord, for them to catch a glimpse, Lord. For them to know what Paul was talking about when he'd admonished Timothy as a young man. To live his life in a particular way. To be aimed at something. To have ambitions that define their life for the glory of God. Lord, give us that kind of culture here in this church. Give us grace to build it. Lord, give us grace when the days are, we're just digging in the dirt to lay foundations and it's, it's messy. God, give us days when we've got to tear that wall out because we thought that was a good idea, but it's, it's not going to work that way. We've got to move that. 
God, give us grace to be led by your Spirit. God, we pray for grace uniquely on Evan. Lord, as his heart turns toward applying the richness of your word to these young people in this hour, in this church, in the year 2012 and in years to come, God, that you would anoint and empower, strengthen and invigorate, inform and direct the gift of leadership that he has been given here in this church. And Lord, we would be the rich recipients of receiving from that gift. God, that you would foster and fashion this partnership between he and Rebecca as they walk as husband and wife. She'd be a means of grace, a unique perspective, Lord, that that he will need from her. Insights and thoughts, concerns and burden, Lord, that uniquely must come through her as she surveys the landscape and brings thoughts to this man to help him. Lord, thank you for spirit-empowered, God-ordained help that you give to us. We pray for grace upon them, Lord, as they seek to lead and care for their own family in the midst of leading and caring for ours. Lord, accompany them in days ahead with power, vibrancy, direction by the Spirit, the move of your Spirit in our midst. God, we thank you by faith for what you are building in our midst to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.